My name's Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And this week, we're getting weird on the Important Cinema Club. Paula, I may be a bitch, but I'll never be a butch. Well, I don't know what that is a reference to. <laughs> you know better than the woman who sells herself to a man. Now, you see, this is... We've already highlighted uh, a crucial difference between me and you, because I grew up watching the Image Entertainment special editions that were put out by the company we're talking about today, Something Weird Video, which always opened with this two-minute trailer advertising all of their releases. You'd see clips from movies with titles like The Curious Dr. Hump, The Smell of Honey, The Swallow of Brine, Teaserama with Betty Page, a ton of other films, mysterious films, strange-looking films, full of all these bizarre moments of of audio um from from these movies like have you ever heard of an egyptian feast well i know that's from blood feast right exactly exactly and you know that opening two minute trailer for me and perhaps for some listeners always felt like a doorway into another world a, a portal into a land of uh infinite possibility so when did you start watching I assume tapes and or the image distributed DVDs of the company Something Weird. I remember when I was a young man, like in the early 2000s, I would go to HMV or Sam the Record Man downtown and they had these DVDs that had something weird video on them and there were titles like bad girls go to hell and another day another man and i uh, looked at those and thought wow that looks that looks really i have no idea what that is because like you i had the video hound cult flicks and trash picks book which is kind of like if you took the Leonard Malton guide and boiled it down to just the offbeat movies that are in that guide, like Brazil or Plan 9 from Outer Space or stuff like that. And I think that the difference between me and you is that I did not have access to any of the films that were in that book. So they were like so far away that I didn't even go into something weird stuff when I was your age in the early 2000s while you were like you know the drug addict you've done everything you need that extra high and something weird is there to give it to you well i do remember when i was about 16 or 17 i started taking the subway downtown to bay street video and they had a section of the dvds that image entertainment would put out a something weird video section and i think the first two i rented from that were the secret sex lives of romeo and juliet and uh, the Wild Wild World of Jane Mansfield. Beautiful films. Incredible films. And what I remember about those in particular was they they were loaded with extra features like stag reels and weird striptease burlesque shorts and trailers. And the trailers would be for all of these movies like uh, The Long Swift Sword of Siegfried or A Clockwork Blue. Look at these trailers. These trailers had boobs in them. Okay. You're like, where could have these trailers ever played? This is madness. Exactly. And I was like, what? Where did these movies show? What was the infrastructure for these? These aren't in the Leonard Malton guide. You're like flipping through it. You're like, maybe I have an old edition or something. And I was kind of wondering like, who is, has, have these things been canonized? Have they been cataloged? Is there any way, if I did want to know about what these movies are, where would I find that out? And did you ever find a solution to that problem? Did you ever go looking? Did you order out for the Something Weird catalog? Send that $3 down the pipe? Well, eventually, I guess I discovered the Something Weird Video website. And I should maybe at this moment say what Something Weird Video is, right? The audience can discover it just like Young Will is discovering it at this point in the story. <laughs> this is a very personal episode, folks. It was a company that was founded in, I think, 1990 by a guy called Mike Franey, who was based in Seattle, Washington. He started as a VH 
VHS bootlegger. In the 80s, he would like go to conventions and he would sell bootleg tapes of like, I don't know, the Universal monster movies or uh, just, just, you know, random stuff. And he would also bootleg kind of sexploitation movies, forgotten movies, movies by filmmakers like David F. Friedman or Russ Meyer or Harry Novak. Eventually, in the early 90s, he actually started to form official partnerships with some of these people. And that's because people like David F. Friedman called him up and were like, what the hell are you doing distributing my films? You don't have the rights to these. And he said to them, like, yes, I don't have the rights to them, but look at how well they're selling. And I'll give you a royalty check for them. And that's like, oh. And so the rest was history. There are certain filmmakers, certain producers who Something Weird Video made an alliance with early on. People like Uh, Herschel Gordon Lewis, David F. Friedman, Doris Wishman, Joe Sarno. These are all filmmakers whose rediscovery in cult film circles is very closely tied to the emergence of Something Weird video. And it begs the question that if Something Weird wasn't around, would have these filmmakers have gotten a second life like they have and i know some people listening may be like what the hell are they talking about i've never heard of any of these filmmakers but in certain circles these people have been canonized like you know doris wishman would she have fallen completely through the cracks or would she be as well loved as she is today if something weird hadn't put out you know some of her films that you know a lot of these filmmakers They weren't necessarily making horror films, which was a very hard sell in the cult genre market. Like, as we talk about all the time here, sex and pornography, while the most popular things, are looked down upon as something that people should have an interest in and want to explore. Even less so, sexploitation, which people are like, why aren't you just watching pornography? Why would you watch sexploitation? And sexploitation is where something weird video lived and thrived. Sexploitation is definitely what people most associate with something weird video, like nudie cutie films, nudist camp movies. And it's probably also important to explain to anyone who doesn't know what these things are. In the late 1950s, there was an important court case that ruled that nudism per se was not illegal. It was not obscene. So that created a whole genre of movies set at nudist camps. And then throughout the 60s, various court cases kept happening that kept expanding the definition of what was what was not obscene. Oh, we should point out nudist camps is butts, breasts. No bush, no dicks. That's pretty much all you could see in nudist camp films. And they always had to have some sort of a socially redeeming quality. Many of these films posed as like documentaries of the nudist camp lifestyle, or later on, the nudie cutie genre, which were more narrative films. They were more, I guess, story-driven films, <laughs> Yeah, <that's true. laughs> if you want to call them that, where invariably they would be about like a goofy guy who finds a way to go invisible or, you know, stumbles into a nudist camp. Or can make women's clothes fall off, like the Immoral Mr. T's. That gives it a story. Uh, have you ever seen the Immoral Mr. T's, by the way? I have not, no. Okay, well, in that one, during a lot of the nude scenes, there'd be narration, like like the, the women would be canoeing, and the narrator would be like, water is described as H2O. It is made up of the elements, you know. <laughs> yeah. the, the narrator, by giving facts about water, which they are canoeing on. Is making it educational. But all these... Uh, nudie movies you may you may ask like why would anybody watch this because like these were the pornography before pornography was allowed or even loops which something weird dealt in a lot of yeah it's like so these nudist camp movies and stuff these are outmoded cultural phenomena 
Um, and then Something Weird Video has also released a lot of like actual hardcore porn films, but like not the good ones either. They have a whole line called the Dragon Art Theater, where it's double features of like one day wonders, just bottom of the barrel crap from the 70s. But then they have a ton of other stuff too. So like they'll put out releases of driver's education scare films or atomic age scare films or you know hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stag films cartoons and tv commercials they put out some kids movies too anything that was forgotten and in the public domain you know when i was younger too i was very curious about oscar michaud the pioneering african-american filmmaker and for a long time the only place where you can get anything by oscar michaud was from something weird video did it have crazy special features like uh, trailer reels and i don't know a stag film thrown into they would have special features but like a lot of their releases were like kind of kind of bargain basement you can still get them they would be dvdrs you know very analog technology and you'd see an oscar michaud movie and you know whatever whatever quality they found it in and then followed by trailers for a bunch of all black cast classics uh from the 30s and 40s like two gun man from harlem or stuff like that and so i think what i'm trying to get at is like first of all in the time before everything was instantly accessible and available on the internet, Something Weird Video was this incredible treasure trove of just forgotten stuff. But also, as, a, as an institution, Something Weird Video has been incredibly important in preserving what I would call like the dark matter of film history. Uh, educational films, commercials, uh, movies by black filmmakers, pornography, you know? Uh, totally undiscriminating. That very brief period when roughies were really popular, which were the kind of transitional thing between the nudie cuties and hardcore pornography. Yeah. And if you were to ask me, like, what are the definitive something weird video titles? I guess I could give you some names. I could say like Blood Feast or The Curious Dr. Hump. But really, it's not about that. Something weird video is just this big, like, soup of of stuff that had otherwise been forgotten and neglected like something weird video preserved a lot of films just like the only surviving copy of a lot of films well so we need to say the story of how this actually happened because it's tied all into one event go for it (laughs) so back in the day when there were a whole bunch of development houses where you would send your unprocessed film to get negatives made and then you could screen it and edit it and stuff like that a lot of the fly-by-night productions would often get stuff developed and then couldn't pay the bill so the movie house would hold on to it for decades at times. So what happened in the 80s and the 90s is that movie houses started to close down and they were left with all this overstock of movies that were never going to get picked up by the people who dropped it off and were never able to pay the bill. And so one of them, Movie Lab, was going out of business. And I don't remember how Mike, the owner of Something Weird Video, heard about it, but I believe him and Frank Helenlauter, who worked at Something Weird, the director of Basket Case and Brain Damage, ended up at Movie Lab And there were just a thousand different celluloid canisters just laying on shelves moments away from being tossed into a truck that would then go into the garbage. And they somehow talked the guy who was, I guess, a security guard, whoever was in charge of like watching the stuff, that they gave him a couple grand and they filled as much as they could onto one truck. And what they were able to fit onto that one truck on that one day essentially defined the Something Weird catalog 
until this day that if they had not shown up and grabbed those films, those films may have just been gone forever and no other copies probably existed out there. And it's just amazing to think that a movie like, uh, just to pick one at random, Mondo Freudo, that's a movie that they found at the movie lab. They had the only existing print of Mondo Freudo. Mondo Freudo is a ripoff of Mondo Kane, one of the shockumentaries that came out in the 1960s. And it alleges to show you bizarre customs from around the world, you know, see uh, slave traders in the Middle East, see this, see that. Of course, it was all faked. It was all filmed in Southern California. And it's a terrible film. But like, aren't you glad it exists? Like, it's a, it's an <laughs> yeah, amazing artifact. It's important that it exists. It's part of our history. And who else is preserving this? Didn't they find Curious Case of Dr. Hump in that uh, go around? I think or they did, did get, they get it at that. Later? And like, you know, there are movies that we've talked about on this podcast too. Like we did our episode about Phil Tucker, the director of Robot Monster. And we talked about his film Broadway Jungle, which is like a feature length subtweet about his uh, friend and, and rival, Ed Wood. And it's a terrible film. But it's got interesting things about it. And, you know, if it wasn't for them, it wouldn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just an, it's just incredible when you look at the catalog. Like, none of these are essential movies in film history, but they are part of film history. And it should be noted that when Something Weird was doing their things at their full powers, like, this was something that was looked down upon by, like, even, you know, cinephiles at the time. Like, the ones that were in power. You look at stuff like Vinegar Syndrome now, or even what Arrow video is putting out and they're treating all the stuff with respect putting it on the market people are buying it even if they don't know what it is well something weird was a real like diy operation you knew those something weird covers because they all looked the same and they had that kind of slapdash art design that was instantly recognizable when you picked up one of those vhs tapes well they almost single-handedly created a certain kind of canon and i think we both read an interview with frank hennenlauter where he said something like we would put out movies and we would get reviews from magazines like film threat where they'd be like the monster at Camp Sunshine is terrible. It's it's so boring. And they'd be like, well, that's the whole point. <laughs> yeah, you guys don't get it. I mean, they're the ones who gave a second life to the amazing god monster of Indian flats that if you haven't seen it, it is like no other featuring a creature that is indescribable. And when you learn that it was actually made by like a visual artist, you're like, oh, that makes a lot more sense. But they were slapping it on a disc and putting it out in the world to fall under the unsuspecting eyes of people like Will Sloan, because an important chapter in the Something Weird history is that they made a deal with Image Films that got all of their pictures on shelves of places like HMV and Sam the Record Man. And it was a whole like second life for yeah, them. Yeah, it was so exciting when I was a younger man, just like blind renting this stuff, like The Erotic Adventures of Zorro or <laughs> My Tale is Hot uh, you know, just just bizarre, strange movies. No one movie is is essential necessarily, but just cumulatively, if you watch a lot of them, there will be moments here, moments there that are indelible. Like they have a whole line of anti-alcohol, anti-drug scare films called Boozers and Losers. The American Genre Film Archive recently put out like a Blu-ray of some of the best ones. And there's an amazing short on that called The Trip Back with Flory Fisher 
Flory Fisher was like the scion of a wealthy family who became a heroin addict, but then like she conquered her addiction and went out as a motivational speaker. And as a motivational speaker, she would just rant and rave and yell and scream and tell horrible stories about her terror about her terrible life where she would be like you know, sleeping in shit on prison floors and prostituting herself and sleeping in bathrooms. And she was she was actually the inspiration for the Amy Sedaris character in Strangers with Candy. And you watch this short film, which is just like, it's just like a shitty educational film, but it's got this incredible, like passionate performance in the middle of it. She's like Klaus Kinski doing the Jesus performances. That's the kind of thing that you can stumble on if you do a deep dive into this world of stuff something weird video put out. For a long time, you could not walk into any self-respecting independent video store and they'd not have a something weird section. <laughs> like all the ones in Toronto had one. Even when I was in Ottawa at the like one cult video store that was there, there was a something weird section because the brand meant something like it wasn't that you were going to pick up a film it's like this is great to watch with a group of my friends i mean some of them were but it was mostly like you are diving into a universe of films like again a lot of them that we talked about like the religious filmmakers that we dived into who made oh, the ormonds yeah something weird released a bunch of their pictures didn't they they've put out a lot of stuff too that's in public domain just weird stuff from all over the place we w- both watched a couple movies this week that were i guess representative of their company uh none of them are great (laughs) (laughs) or good (laughs) or good but you know they're interesting in their way i know that we both watched a film by david f friedman produced by david f friedman called space thing and david f friedman uh, just to give a little bit of context of who he was he was an exploitation producer he made such films as the adult version of jekyll and hyde he produced blood feast with herschel gordon lewis ton of nudist camp movies he was essentially a scummier version of john goodman and matinee <laughs> Like, I know that that's kind of based on William Castle, but like David F. Friedman was the guy who put all of his stuff in a truck and would sell all these gimmicks to um, small towns in an attempt to get his movies played. David F. Friedman began his career working as a carnival guy. He worked in the carny industry and he always had that spirit. He loved the con. And why give him the steak if you can sell him the sizzle? He was the one who distributed Ingmar Bergman's Summer with Monica in the United States. Yep, because it nudity in it (laughs) he changed the title to monica the story of a bad girl (laughs) (laughs) shameless and if you see that movie like you just see a woman's ass in one scene but you know it probably became the most seen bergman movie until the 70s yeah until roger corman picked up the ingmar bergman film and put him on the driving circuit exactly but what is space thing i mean space thing is if you ever wanted Uh, people to have softcore sex on rickety like fan-made star trek stuff Mm, space thing is the movie for you yeah it's a really low budget science fiction spoof and it has this opening scene that's set on like planet earth with this couple having sex but the man keeps getting distracted by his science fiction comic book and I was watching this thinking, well, surely this was added in post-production later to like beef up the running time, right? And uh, I was right. <laughs> and this movie is incredibly cheap. It was one of Something Weird's best-selling and most loved releases, which is one of the reasons why David F. Friedman got into a long-term partnership with them, because he saw no value in this film. Uh, he thought it was one of the worst things he'd ever done. And, and it is one of the worst things he's ever done. The spaceship sets are just like as austere as you can get the seats in the spaceships are just 
uh, garbage cans tipped over, you know. But people who want bare breasts and people simulating sex, this movie's got a lot of it. Do you think there's value in preserving a movie like this, Justin? Uh, I do think there is value because it's capturing a moment in time where this thing either had value or had no value. And there's something interesting in that. People making these motion pictures, putting them out on a market, failing or succeeding. I think that is important. Now, does that mean that I will own a copy of Spacing? No, but I am glad that it is out there in the world with David F. Friedman commentary on it, which is probably in the form that it has its most value. Yeah, I did listen to a bit of his commentary this week, and he's very avuncular and charming. And uh, at the time of recording, didn't fully understand why this movie was being put out into the world again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious as to why it was one of the big sellers for something weird. What would have been the att- attraction of um, Joe? six pack picking it up off the shelf i think it's an easier sell than some of them because it's got a bit of that plan nine from outer space quality to it it's like it's a cheap sci-fi movie you've got cheap sets like it's an easy movie to laugh at if you want to as opposed to another film that we watched the curious case of dr hump which i thought was going to be more of a horror film than it actually ended up being because there is so much humping going on in this picture yeah the plot of this one and this is basically like a ripoff of the movies jess franco was making at the time in spain what a world to live in that someone was making ripoffs of the earlier classier jess franco films but making them sleazier a doc Dr. Hump is a mad scientist who takes orders from a talking brain. Uh, he kidnaps couples and makes them have sex. And he, while they're having sex during their orgasms, he extracts like a fluid from them, not cum, but something else, some other kind of fluid, uh, some fluid that's only created in that moment. And I'm not sure where it exists. Anal sweat. Yeah, something like that. Why not? And with this fluid he's going to do experiments that will create a potion that will eventually make him conquer the world but in the meantime he takes it and has a uh dr jekyll mr hyde style transformation that involves slapping on a halloween mask and running around terrorizing people this is one of i guess something weird videos big discoveries it's one of the titles that's often associated with them uh it's a bit boring, I thought. Uh, there's a lot of sex going on in black and white in this film. You know, that's the thing about these black and white ones. Black and white sexploitation, uh, you know, I, I just want a little bit of color. You know, I do like the fact that it has the contours of a classic Jeff Franco film, the ones before he got into Vampiros Lesbos territory, but it is so packed with sex. It's almost like, huh, oh, wow, I guess we're going to see everything in this movie hundreds of times to the point of boredom, and I do not need to watch this picture anymore. I just love to imagine this playing in i have to assume uh porno style theaters in argentina because that's where the film was from them getting the rocks off to this weird mix of talking brain monster movie and just tons of sex something that we didn't watch this week but that i think i want to like put on the record i just want to bring up is a movie called bat pussy which has also become one of their most popular ones we can talk about it in the context of i guess the present of something weird and its future yeah so like what's been going on with them because mike franey died in 2014 i believe he died of cancer his widow lisa petrucci has been running the company ever since and she's made these deals with various companies yeah so basically they're 
kind of distributing the films that they've already done, but they're doing oftentimes new scans or new special features and making them to reflect the really like fancy collectible market that has been the bread and butter of the Blu-ray world for the last like six, eight years. So like Bat Pussy, the movie that Will mentioned, when it came out, it was like just on a VHS and a DVD. It was just unknown. But AGFA, the American Genre Film Archives, put it out and they had like new cartoony art for it. I believe there's a commentary on it. There's like probably a little booklet in there as well. And tell the people what Bat Pussy is. Bat Pussy is one that everybody really should see. (laughs) Yeah, gather the family together, your best friends. And, you know, it's Plan 9 like, right? It's from the early 70s. It's a little under an hour long. It is technically a hardcore porn film, but... Uh, you're you're not going to be masturbating to it. And th- no one knows who made it, and they don't know who acts in it. It just exists on its own. Which is so rare in this day and age. That's why we need to treasure this movie. It- it's one of the few mysteries that we still have left. It is a Batman parody, sort of. Most of the movie takes place in this one room where this couple... A couple of a certain age, it would seem. They, you know, they may only be in their 30s, but they could be in their 60s. They're just arguing and yelling at each other and verbally abusing each other. Oh, and it's set in the Deep South and it's shot in the Deep South. So they have thick Southern accents. And in this torrent of verbal abuse, much of which is pretty funny, they occasionally lugubriously have sex. Uh, Meanwhile, down the street, Bat Pussy who is a woman in a shoddy room, gets a twitch. She knows that somebody out there is fucking in Gotham City. So she uh, puts on her shitty little costume and she she bounces (laughs) over there on this bouncy ball thing. I mean, you're describing it fairly well. That's that's pretty much what happens. And she joins them for the orgy of verbal abuse and uh, flaccid sex. And I feel like I've described the movie accurately but i haven't quite conveyed the poetry (laughs) yeah and the fact that a company like something weird was able to save it and put it out in the world something that essentially probably to the people that made it has the value of home movies i assume it was maybe made to play at one theater that probably somebody who's in the picture owned and then it was supposed to disappear forever but it was pulled off a dusty shell probably because it had the insane label on it bat pussy to just be discovered in horror that this thing exists and that horror then turns to love and appreciation and now you can go on amazon and you can order it and have it in your home probably tomorrow just an incredible thing and you know something weird has partnered with a lot of other companies uh, they've been working with kino to put out old like 30s and 40s exploitation films movies like mom and dad and marijuana and narcotic a lot of the joe sarno films are also being uh distributed by another label i mean there something weird touched so many filmmakers joe sarno andy milligan that we can't even get into like how much of an impact that stuff has and those films are now finding their way on these beautiful new special editions that are almost telling people like you got to treat this movie with respect because look how much work went into it which back in the day when something weird you know they loved and respected these films but it wasn't as like out there and now it is and that's beautiful and it could not exist without all of their hard work yeah and i just can't overstate the extent to which this company and its efforts have expanded my understanding of what constitutes a movie this was your 
experimental cinema canon going through something weird. Film history is just so much vaster and stranger and more interesting because of this company for me. So uh, Mazel Tov. And uh, Will's not being sarcastic if anybody's wondering. <laughs> just... No, not no irony at all. It's like they have enriched my life so much and I love them. So... Do we have any letters? We do have some letters. And as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Joseph Lopez. And it goes, hey, guys, I will try to keep this short. I'm excited to write to you as a longtime listener. I discovered you during a road trip when I was searching podcasts about experimental cinema. I love that someone would search experimental cinema and we're one of the first things that comes up. Once I started listening and saw all the vast topics you guys did, I knew this was the best film podcast out there. Oh, well, thank you. That's what I keep telling people. <laughs> on the street, Motern style. You're like, hey, you listen to podcasts? Enjoying that on your earphones? You know, we should check out the Important Cinema Club. <laughs> Guerrilla marketing. The letter continues. I was thrilled to see that you recently did a Jonas Makas episode. Jonas Makas. I don't know why I can't say his name. His films are time capsules of memories long gone, and that sort of thing really gets to me. This may be too much information, but I figured you should know some personal things about your listeners. Oh no, personal things about our listeners! I am recently divorced, so films made by people like Mikas help with the coping process. One positive thing about being divorced, though, is that I've been able to view almost 2,000 films, both full length and short, in the course of a year. So my question to you guys is, which films make you super emotional or moved? Thanks for being the best in the business! I don't know why it moves me as much as it does, but like a lot of movies about fathers and sons really hits me in a sweet spot. And I've never had a bad relationship with my dad, but I am the product of divorced parents and my dad, I would only see him like once a week, every two weekends. So there's something that like resonates there with me when I see that kind of stuff and really hits me. Like, for example, Noah Baumbach's uh, Marriage Story, like that was like a reflection of stuff that I had gone through. Other than that, like, all the regular movies, Iron Giant, tears streaming down my face, like, you know, the regular stuff that really hits people in the fields. We, I talked about this a little bit when we did an episode on him, but Ozu is a filmmaker who really hits me now that I'm older. Um, so many of his movies are about the dissolution of the family unit and also about you know, the unstoppable march of time. And now that I'm in my early 30s, I feel like both of those subjects... Uh, carry a lot more weight for me than they would have in my early 20s. Like I've seen the the world around me, my the, my communities around me, the city I live in. I've seen all that change drastically in my lifetime. And I mean, you know, when you get older, you don't have the same kind of relationship with your parents that you used to when you were a younger man. I mean, you're an only child. So your relationship with your parents is a very close one and strong one yeah and and that's something i've had cause to think about for sure uh so ozu hits me very hard and you know i'll just say one that i watched this week i watched limelight on netflix the chaplin film which i hadn't seen in a <laughs> long netflix. time I, yeah i wanted to give them uh give them a click and i found myself i'd always kind of thought of it as like lesser chaplin or i thought of it as kind of flawed but on this viewing i just felt like 
intensely moved by it. And I think some of it, too, is just that stuff about like, I realize I'm only in my early 30s. And you've been saying this for the last five years. <laughs> I know, but I'm becoming just incredibly vulnerable to movies about the passage of time and a new generation taking over from the old one and, and older people just breaking down and falling apart. Well, don't worry, Will. You'll feel that way, if not more so, for the next 30 years. <laughs> So thanks very much for that letter. And our next one is from Luke Maxwell. And it goes, Justin and Will, thanks for all the hours of entertainment. I was listening to your episode on Disney's World War II propaganda films. And in the after show bit, you were talking about film studies classes and your experiences. Man, we did an episode on Disney World War II propaganda. What have we not talked about? <laughs> I almost forgot about so that. So this letter continues. Something funny that sticks in my mind from first year film classes was that a lot of people took the course without really knowing what it was about and ended up dropping off throughout the year. One of the first films we watched for class was The Bicycle Seas. And I'll never forget that at the end, when Fine comes up on the screen, a guy in the class says out loud, but it's not fine. He lost his bike. He was, to the best of my knowledge, not joking around. He left the class a couple of weeks later. I hope this doesn't come across as bagging on this guy. More of a thing about how ill-equipped we all were for watching these foreign films for the first time. Keep up the good work, Luke. I, I gotta say that all these like film 101 classes are just terrible. They're taught by a teacher who's been there for decades, doesn't care if anybody enjoys these films, just kind of rambles on a short intro that gives no context, and then throws up friggin' Bicycle Thieves. The same thing happened to me when I took my film 101 classes. Why play Bicycle Thieves as the first movie? It's kind of a shame that that's the first way that people get exposed to these movies and it scares them off forever. Like, I remember seeing Ingmar Bergman's Persona in first year like at nine in the morning with a minimal intro not a perfect way to see that and also at Innes College Innes Town Hall at U of T it was at that time you know that theater where they open the door the doors open and like the light spills onto the screen yeah so like half the movie becomes invisible because of that and I remember uh, leaving it on the way out overhearing somebody go that was the biggest waste of time I've ever seen and I remember thinking how and and like whatever it's fine like people with no context for the movie like don't have to like it but i remember thinking what a, what a shame it was i mean i think that the one thing that teachers should do as like people introducing you know giant groups to these kind of movies and it's tough when you're in university it's like a class of a thousand people all stuffed into this giant auditorium but like innis is not that big like the teacher could have given it proper context and just gotten people interested in you know kind of engaging with what they're about to see and then you know challenging them not in a way of like here i'm throwing you to the wolves swim but like here's the context here's why you should be interested in it now we'll watch it and then we'll discuss it afterwards but i never got that feeling from any of the post-secondary film classes that i took it was mostly like blah 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 here's a bunch of historical info that i'm dryly reading here you go and then go to a class with a TA who doesn't care. And that's, you know, what your film experience will be as far as an educational one. I remember that Citizen Kane was rather coolly received on the first week. And I remember thinking that, like, God, if you can't even sell Citizen Kane, which is like the easiest one. I mean, listen, all those teachers, they probably had tenure. They had been there forever. 
or they were uh, like now none of them can get tenure and they live out of their cars because they're not making enough money to um, pay for rent. So, you know, it's, uh, you know, you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't kind of situation. I like to think that, you know, you shouldn't go to school for film. Not when you have the important cinema club to listen to every week. That's right. We'll make you appreciate these movies. You Folks, you just heard me get all teary talking about the films of Ozu. And now you can enjoy Tokyo Story. And watch the movie and then listen to the episode of the important cinema club on Ozu. We accept donations for such great entertainment and knowledge that we're giving your way. So, Will, what are we doing on our Patreon this week? We talked about a film that if you are our age, you probably saw on the shelf of Blockbuster a lot growing up. It's called Amazon Women of the Moon. It's directed by Joe Dante, John Landis, and some other guys whose names I forget. It's an anthology film, a hell's a poppin' comedy full of shenanigans. You take hell's a poppin' out of your mouth. <laughs> Even though, th- did you notice that Freeze Frame is a really funny joke where the video pirates find a bunch of videotapes, one of the skits, and they open it up and it's just like... 30 in-jokes, including uh, a Hells of Poppin' Guys movie. Like, I think it's like Wake Up the Zombies or something right, like Olsen that. Right, and Johnson, yeah. And I also noticed that there was a Laurel and Hardy film that's famously missing. One of their color shorts was included in that box as well. And so was The Other Side of the Wind, which you can now watch by just opening up Netflix. So anyway, you'll be able to listen to us talk about this movie, this childhood favorite of so many. Not us! Are we rediscovering a comedy classic that history has unfairly tossed to the side well you can have to listen to the episode to find out five dollars a month patreon.com slash the important cinema club well what are we doing next week something that we don't talk about a lot on this podcast is music uh, because we're not a music podcast but did you know that there is a band that has worked with martin scorsese jonathan demi the mazels brothers jean-luc godard robert frank other filmmakers whose names i'm forgetting right now yes i am talking about your dad's favorite band the Rolling Stones. Is he any dad's favorite band anymore? Like, the Rolling Stones are so prevalent everywhere, but it's rare that I hear someone say, like, ah, they're my favorite. I think there are some dads who love them. You know what's funny about this episode is that I am aware of the Rolling Stones, but they were never a part of my childhood other than, like, their hits playing on classic rock because they were not my dad's favorite band. He never listened to them. He was mostly a Frank Zappa guy, but I'm excited to dive into not only their music, I'm going to listen to some of them classic albums but also the films that they made with such famous filmmakers. I mean, you know, Cocksucker Blues, Sympathy for the Devil, Gimme Shelter. Uh, and we're definitely going to have to watch the Martin Scorsese concert film that they, uh, they made together. Shine <laughs> a Light. You said you were going to last week. No, I know that we have to watch Shine a Light. It's important to watch it. That said, I'm not looking forward to watching it because I did see that theatrically. Did you? All I remember is the trailer of Mick Jagger complaining on a voicemail machine about like, do you have to have the camera going over the crowd the entire time? It's a bit annoying. Uh, Here's what I remember about seeing Shine a Light theatrically. After 45 minutes, I thought, okay, I'm good. (laughs) Well, uh, that's what we're doing next week. And until then, my name is Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Hello, Justin here, and as per usual, I'd like to thank our new Patreon subscribers, who include Andy Willick, Nicholas Reed, Andrew Busby, Jordan Cox, and Stephen Douglas. Thank you so much for becoming subscribers, we couldn't do it without you. And for all our regular patrons, we will be hosting another important cinema club, Secret Cinematheque, this Friday at 8pm Eastern Standard Time. 
check in to the Discord, which is the chat room that you get access to when you become a patron for more information. Oh, and if you haven't given the show a review on Apple Podcast, please do. We would really appreciate it, and it's been a very long time since someone has. Now, back to your regular scheduled programming. So I've been thinking a lot about the Laser Blast Film Society, a thing that me and Peter Kaplowski used to do at the Royal Cinema because Peter's been putting together a list of everything that we've shown, which is like almost like 85 titles. <laughs> like I looked through the Google document today and it's wild that not only were we able to do it for so long, but we also did it to no acclaim. Hey, cre- credit where due. Didn't Norm Wilner interview Peter for Now Magazine one time about it? Yeah, well, for the What the Film Festival. But, like, the fact that if you go on Letterboxd and you search Laser Blast Film Society, I put together a list of all the movies we played. It is just um, never not funny what we were able to subject people to, the stuff that, like, we loved. And we knew that if we didn't play it, it would probably never play anywhere again. Do you have any favorite uh, Laser Blast screenings that you attended, uh, Yeah, I just want to say, like, everything I said about Something Weird video in this episode, how it expanded my understanding of what cinema is, um how it gave me tons of exciting new strange offbeat film memories also applies at least equally so to the laser blast film society (laughs) i think the first one i went to uh was runaway nightmare Mm. which was a very very strange um like fever dream of a movie did you talk about that in your supporting characters interview Uh, i think i maybe just mentioned that we showed it and we talked about how weird it was i feel like i talked about it somewhere and i don't remember where it is it was probably that supporting characters interview yeah which if people haven't checked it out i was on the supporting characters podcast bill ackerman's podcast and i do not uh, i am within much fancier company that's not true justin that's not true yeah okay justin you have so many more stories than all those people uh Check that out if you want to hear me more talk about uh, myself some more. So you saw Runaway Nightmare and you came back. That's a really weird one. I felt like a lot of people up until then, that was our fourth screening. were like, oh, yeah, I understand what they're doing. And then Runaway Nightmare was a real like, what the heck is this? Some of those early screenings really like linger in my memory. They were the one the early screenings were the ones that like made the biggest impression on me because again your sensibility and peter's sensibility was it was a new sensibility to me at that time so like uh, there was one you showed furious which was a bizarre kind of surreal low-budget american martial arts movie featuring the Ree brothers or there was that one unmasked part 25 that vinegar syndrome has put out and i would like to point out that film only exists on vinegar syndrome because of peter kaplowski because he got in contact with the screenwriter and the screenwriter never thought anybody cared about Unmasked Part 25. And when he found a negative of it, he contacted Peter. Peter put him in contact with Vinegar Syndrome. And that's how that movie is now available, remastered on Blu-ray. So like going to the Laser Blast Film Society every month, it was like, like you know, opening up a box of Cracker Jacks and being excited about what the prize was going to be. It, it always felt like I was going to get my my world rocked in a in a whole new, different way each time. I mean, I'm just looking at this list, and it's kind of crazy. Like, oh yeah, we did play that. Like, we played Future Cops, the Wong Jing Street Fighter Two movie on the big screen. We did. Um, 
Dial Code Santa Claus, a film that at that time no one was talking about or had seen, and now it just came out on 4K Blu-ray from Vinegar Syndrome. The Laser Blast Film Society was where I first found out about Wakaliwood, that wonderful collective of filmmakers in rural Uganda who make no-budget action movies, uh, which I and I feel like they have a real cult following now too. Yeah, it 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 felt like like every Laser Blast Film Society was like being on the cutting edge of what the next big cult classic was going to be. You know, looking at this list there is actually a movie on here that we showed that is coming out on blu-ray it hasn't been announced yet but i know that it is and it played to a packed house i mean we showed stuff like demon lover diary one of the greatest making of documentaries of all time there's a movie you showed that's on youtube now that people really need to check out it's called the instructor it was shot in ohio a regional martial arts movie just by this like martial arts dojo guy who had a school that he ran and and made this vanity project for himself and the last 20 minutes of this movie are one long chase scene and it's so funny Uh, like i was i was in pain with laughter watching this we showed the uh infamous the astrologer did you see it when we showed it uh will yes i did and i'm glad i was because nobody can see this movie now i don't want to rub it in people's faces but this is like one of the weirdest movies ever. Uh, one thing that we loved at the Laser Blast Film Society were ego projects, films that would be dismissed by regular audiences as, ah, somebody just made this to, you know, make them look cool. Oh no, we love that kind of stuff. And The Astrologer is like a 35 millimeter film about just a guy who wanted to make a film about how he's the greatest and everyone should respect him. I mean, we didn't discover it. It was discovered by uh, Nicholas Winding Refn. <laughs> When he just bought a bunch of 35 millimeter prints, but we, it was so popular. We showed it not once, but twice because the world was just hungry for astrologer fever. And of course you showed one of your favorite movies, Radioactive Dreams by Albert Pune, which I think is the movie that probably set you off on this crazy path to being the world's leading Albert Pune historian. I mean, the movie did, but the screening was the actual reason for me to write the book because I was like, I'll put it out when we play the movie. And that's why I ended up writing the book. I mean, I think probably the most surprising screening we had was Things, the classic Canadian film, because not only was it a packed audience, like so many people showed up, but everybody loved it. Like everybody left buzzing and so excited that they were able to watch things in an in a theater. And it's like that's what Laser Blast always meant to be is to bring these experiences that otherwise could not exist. That was always my goal, me and Peter, to like have movie experiences that could probably never existed and never could exist because nobody else would put it on. And I think we succeeded with the stuff that now we did. Now can I ask you, you're you're talking about the Laser Blast Film Society in the past tense a lot. And a lot of that, of course, is because the pandemic rages on. There's basically no public film culture right now. Will it come back? Uh, I mean, it's going to come back uh, probably as online screenings uh, soon. So keep your eyes peeled to the Laser Blast Film Society Twitter or just my Twitter and we'll make announcement as it goes. 